Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Welcome to a new episode. It's August 8th. I actually wasn't going to do a podcast this week. I, I just wasn't feeling it, frankly. I just decided at the last minute to look through a few stories, what was going on in the news, and I, I felt compelled to do something, to get something off my mind, because I don't really have the avenue otherwise, the outlet otherwise, uh, other than on WOR radio uh, every Monday morning at 7.05 in New York City. But that's a short uh, bit of time, and I'm usually arguing with a leftist who seems to think everything's going great in the country, and I find them arguing more than actually disseminating information or disseminating my feelings. So I figured, what the hell? I would do another podcast today. Why not? And there were some things in the news that kind of compelled me to speak about it because, you know, the news cycle is over so quickly that I felt that I owed it to myself mostly to get these things off my chest. And one of them is what is a war in Israel right now that's going on. And I've got a lot of listeners out of all the countries in the world, the one where I actually rank the highest, if you can believe in terms of, of, uh, listeners per capita is Israel. So I felt that at the very least, I should discuss something about the war that's going on there between Israel and the uh, and, and Iran, in essence, because it's Iran's paid terror proxy, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. That's, that's the name of that terror proxy that Iran pays. And there is a thousand rockets that came from Gaza into Israel, and Israel's responding. So I felt I should talk about that. So I'm going to get into that briefly at some point. But there are other things, you know, I've talked so much about things that have happened in my career that it's getting harder to think of different stories. I mean, there's a lot of stories. The problem is that when they happen, and they've happened so many times over the past 31 years, I always say to myself, I got to remember that because that's just a nuts situation. And of course, I forget it. So it just disappears forever. So I try now when I think of something that pops into my head to at least get it down permanently because this essence in essence becomes an oral history of my career and why not to me it's important and maybe to a few of you people it's important as well and one of the things i thought about talking about was harvey weinstein and jeff epstein and these are two criminal defendants or were criminal defendants who contemplated hiring me and i came very close to working on both of their cases. I ended up not Epstein, of course, because he killed himself and Harvey Weinstein for a variety of reasons that I'll get into now, but I should at least talk about my, my feelings when I met them and sort of give you an idea, maybe a, a different view than perhaps what the average person just saw from reading the media, because the media is so biased and in connection with both of these defendants, there was such a, like a, a strong desire by the media to push one agenda that you never really got the truth. So I figured, you know, let me, let me get it out and tell you what I thought. And I was up close and personal with both of them. During the Chapo trial, the, the trial was going on. It was going on for months. I get a call from a lawyer who was representing Harvey on some civil matters. And Harvey, obviously, is the very famous Hollywood producer or former Hollywood producer who was charged with sexually assaulting women, multiple women. I think there was 90 before 
it ended, but he was actually only charged with a couple of them in his criminal case in New York. And I was asked, do you want to meet him and possibly represent him at the trial? He needs a real trial lawyer. He had been through a few and he didn't really have anybody at this point that he felt was strong enough to represent him. And I was curious for sure. And even though it was in the middle of, of Chapo and I was pretty busy at the time, but the, the Harvey case was just horrible uh, on so many levels beyond the charges, beyond that. The media, as I said, was just destroying the guy. And to me, it seemed unfair only in that it prevented him, in my mind, of receiving a fair trial. And that's all that really mattered to me. And, and also, before I met him, I couldn't help but feel bad for him because all of his high-powered friends, and he had so many, when this guy was flying high, he was as, as high as anybody could be, all of his powerful friends, they had abandoned him. They all dropped him. The friends, the connections, nobody wanted anything to do with him. And this was a hugely powerful guy. This is someone who was close with the Clintons, with Obama. He had them in his home. He was very close to them. I mean, they considered him a personal friend. And now he was completely radioactive, even though, to be fair, it wasn't exactly a secret that he had slept with a lot of women who had come to him looking for acting jobs. So while I understand why people dropped him, people, you know, bold, uh, bold names that dropped him, it's not like they didn't know about a lot of stuff that was arguably inappropriate when they were needing him or using him for stuff that they wanted. And it's ugly. It's ugly to see when that happens. In addition, many of the women that had, at least in my mind, when I'm thinking about this case before I even visited Harvey, was that many of the women that had slept with him had done so voluntarily. They knew what they were getting themselves into, and many had actually initiated the contact. They felt that their careers were, I guess, important enough to them that they were willing to sleep with the guy. It wasn't all him going after them. And I'm not criticizing what they did or were, you know, making any kind of judgment call on it. It just is what it is, and none of this is really a secret. None of it's really disputed. The sexual assaults, however, are a different story. If, if it happened, it happened, and he'd have to be held accountable if he was convicted. The point I guess I'm trying to make is that at least in terms of a defense, because that's what I think of when somebody calls me, the first thing I think of is, well, if I get this case, I'm going to have to defend it. I'm not concerned about the other stuff. I'm not like a star fucker that when a bold-faced name uh, contacts me, like I'm all excited as a fan to ask questions. All I care about is if I'm going to get this case, I better figure out a way to win it because I don't want to lose it. I don't want to have to go through the misery of, of losing a high-profile case. It's horrible. It's like a death. So my point in my head was that at least in terms of a defense, when the so-called victims are continuing to contact Harvey after they claim that he'd uh, raped them or assaulted them, well, that's not really a great look for the prosecution. And that's what had occurred here. One of his so-called victims contacted him after her father died because she wanted, uh, I guess, a shoulder to lean on. Used him to get auditions after she claimed that she had been sexually assaulted by him. She was still close with him. She still contacted him. Again, sex assault victims do all kinds of things that make no sense. I'm not, again, suggesting that the fact that these women did such things with Harvey after the alleged assault means that it didn't happen, the sex assaults. But in my mind, as a defense lawyer, I'm thinking that I could use that 
to convince a jury that no sexual assault had occurred. And that's like a subtle point I'm making, but it's an important one. I'm not looking at this case when, when I hear from a Harvey Weinstein, well, what a horrible thing he did. I don't care. All I care about is if I'm defending this guy, how am I going to win the case? And that was the kind of stuff that I was thinking about before I, I met with him. To me, it was a very triable case, the allegations against him for those very reasons. Now, I'm sure that the people, the state could bring in witnesses, experts to say, look, sex assault victims oftentimes keep in contact with their abusers after the fact. But I'm telling you that in terms of what an average juror thinks, they're going to think that's weird. And they're going to be less inclined to believe a witness who claims that she was horribly assaulted by Harvey Weinstein, but then the next week asking him for tickets for a premiere to a movie. And in my mind, it certainly, his case was not the hardest case I'd ever try. And I had won way more difficult cases. So I was interested. I was interested. I was, you know, intrigued, I would say. And I went to visit him with the lawyer who had contacted me. He had an office, like a temporary office, certainly wasn't his regular office, in some nondescript building on the east side at Midtown in Manhattan. And the place was just an utter disaster, just such a mess. It was like mortifying. I just couldn't imagine that his real office when he was flying high could have looked anything like this. He had one assistant who was running around uh, into and out of the room doing everything for him. His office is like one office. It was one room. It was filled with mismatched furniture and it looked like an office that you'd find like at a meatpacking plant. Like the office itself wasn't important. It was just there to house human beings who were doing their job. It was nothing to impress, is my point, which I'm sure, again, was much different than his office when he was a producer at Miramax. And it was like 100 degrees inside the office. I mean, it was so hot. And I, I didn't know if, it, if he was cold from whatever meds he was on, but it was unusually hot. I mean, it was awful inside that office. And I didn't ask. I just sat there sweating uh, like crazy. And again, it was sad for me to see the fall from grace that he had, how alone he was. And I know, I know you're thinking, well, how could you feel sorry for Harvey Weinstein? This isn't a guy who ever felt sorry for anyone in his life. Well, I did. I mean, I'm sorry. I, he just, to me, he looked like an animal was trapped in a cage. He was, he was cornered and he was angry and he was frustrated and all the things that you can imagine would occur to someone like him who was at the position he was. And all of a sudden he wakes up one day. And he's a cockroach. But to me, he was trying to appear more human than I think he ever had to in his prior life. To me, it seemed that whenever he'd sort of fall back into the pompous or too pushy Harvey Weinstein, he'd recognize that in his new life, the one where he had no power, the one where he was so desperate uh, to depend on the grace of others, he had to act nicer and, and to get people to do stuff for him, to at least talk to him. He couldn't bully anyone anymore. So he wavered between being really solicitous and kind and angry and having unrealistic demands. And it was just painful to watch it happen in real time. And as I said, I, I loved the case for a variety of reasons, mainly because it presented to me a huge challenge to try to change the public narrative. And secondly, because I felt I could win it. And he was having such a hard time finding lawyers. No one wanted to represent him. 
he was such a, a, a difficult hands-on client as it was because he was smart and he wanted to be involved in his defense. But it seemed that for a guy who always wanted to be the director, it was hard for him to let go. He couldn't let go to, to trust a stranger with his life. And many lawyers just didn't want to be associated with such a horrible, high-profile case, which to me is just so weak. They'd represent fraudsters who stole billions of dollars from people, whose victims lost their life savings and, and may have even committed suicide after. But Harvey Weinstein was just too low for them. And, you know, they don't want the publicity. Oh, you're representing Harvey Weinstein. It's just lame and cowardly. Like, if you can't succeed in this profession by taking, you know, those kind of cases, then you're not going to be a success. You're basically indicating that you think you need help to succeed, that you can't succeed under any circumstances. And that's just, just so weak and so lame. I mean, why do this kind of work if you're afraid to represent someone? It just tells me that you're not really dedicated to the work. You're dedicated to yourself, that you're willing to sell a client out if you feel your reputation could take a hit. And this is not the profession to be weak like that because you need every drop of energy that you have to defend these people sometimes. You, and you have to convince yourself that this is, you know, the right path that you're taking on cases. You're, you have enough confidence in your judgment. And when your judgment is clouded by fear for how a case is going to impact you publicly, well, then you're not thinking about the client and you're clouded. Your judgment is clouded, as I said. And Harvey was really smart, so he could smell the weakness from lawyers a mile away. He had been through a bunch and was really disappointed in how intellectually lacking they were, including some high-profile lawyers, and he wasn't wrong. I mean, I knew the lawyers as well. He wasn't wrong. He, you know, he wasn't in a position to be all that choosy, however, as I said, and he ultimately ended up with lawyers who he didn't think much of, who in his heyday wouldn't have been allowed to be anywhere near him, but such is life. And he had to make do, which is how he ended up with who he ended up with in his mind. Now we hit it off instantly when we met, mainly because he could tell that I had no fear in representing him. I mean, I had represented people that were worse in the media than Harvey Weinstein, believe it or not. And we also had a similar view on how to fight the case. He felt that he needed a female lawyer to be the lead lawyer, which I didn't agree with completely. He felt it would look bad in front of the jury. Not surprisingly, if a male lawyer was beating the crap out of a female so-called victims, the witnesses, that a woman could get away with more. And, and he's not wrong with that. I, I felt that he was right. I, I felt that a woman should be on the defense team because if it was all men, it could seem too much like men ganging up on a vulnerable female victim, and uh, juries don't like that. But having one woman on the team who did some of the work would soften that look and make Harvey appear more acceptable to women on the jury, and even some men who were very sensitive to those types of things. And After all, if a female lawyer could accept him as innocent, then other women could. I mean, it's that you're sending a signal. And these are the kind of things that defense lawyers and defendants think of. Ultimately, I decided I didn't want the case for myself, and Harvey understood. Um, he wanted, as I said, a, a lead attorney who was a female. I had, when I made the decision not to, to take the case, um, Chapo was over. I had a massive amount of publicity during that case. I had a massive amount of stalkers. It was uh, kind of a scary time for me, I would say. And the last thing I wanted to do was jump from Chapo into Harvey Weinstein. It just, there was just no way 
that I was going from one to the other and he got it and it was a mutual agreement because he felt the same way that it wouldn't be great for me going from the news in one case to this next case, even though, you know, he felt that I was the right lawyer for it. And he was right. I was the right lawyer for this. I would have you know, thoroughly enjoyed uh, taking apart those witnesses in the case. But while we met during Chapo's case, his trial wasn't until the next year, like a full year later. So I kept in close touch with him and I advised him plenty during that year. Uh, I spoke positively about him in the press, uh, about his case and about him. Whenever I was contacted, I did a number of public interviews, which I hoped uh, could combat the negative light that he was being placed in by the press. It wasn't fair. So I had to speak out if I was given the opportunity. It's not like the press has me on speed dial for every high profile defendant, but I would get calls and I do on every big case. And when given the opportunity, I would speak about him and explain why I thought the case was weak to the press and explain what Harvey was really like, that he, you know, wasn't just this really bad person that the press had branded him as. And I felt really appalled that all of his friends had abandoned him. They all loved him when they wanted something from him, but when they, when he needed them, when the shoe was on the other foot, they just vanished. It, it's just sickening. It's just such a bad aspect of, I guess, human nature. I spoke positively about him uh, as a person because that's the only part that I ever had seen firsthand when I spoke to the press. It's not like I'm going to say, well, I've read the charges and they're awful, so therefore he's an awful person. I said, no, when I met him, I genuinely liked him and this is why. And I didn't do it uh, for money or for future favors. And he was always so thankful and so appreciative that somebody was speaking up for him. And most of the time, it was just me in the press speaking positively about him. There was um, an investigator named Tom Harvey, who also spoke positively about him. We never spoke about it, Tom and I, but maybe we did. I don't recall, but I was impressed that he at least put, you know, himself on the line, so to speak, as I had. It's not like we knew Harvey. At least I didn't know Harvey the way a lot of other people did, but I just felt that it was wrong. And he was always, as I said, so appreciative and he would always, and I, I was looking at my texts between me and him. And whenever he'd hear me on the radio or read about me in the times or any of the newspapers, he would thank me and text, thank you. I know how to reciprocate. And that kind of like gave me the, uh, the heebie jeebies a little bit. Like I was expecting a favor back and that's why I was doing it for him. I think that was just the world that he lived in for so long where you scratch my back and I scratch yours. I wasn't doing it for that reason. I wanted nothing from the guy. And I told him that in text. I'm like, Dude, just win the trial. That's all I wanted. Um, I genuinely wanted to help him. I know you're listening and you're thinking, what the fuck is wrong with Lichtman? I get it. I get it. Believe me, I get it. But I, as I said, I never wanted a favor back. And I would tell him that in our texts and I, I've got them all. And as I said, I advised him plenty behind the scenes as much as I could. And it was tough to watch the trial from afar. I'd speak to him often during the trial, and he was always hopeful, never thought that he would lose up until the very end. And throughout, because I wasn't his lawyer, we were able to speak about things that weren't case-related. His kids, his life, restaurants, places where he'd been, places where he wanted to go. He was really a regular guy, believe it or not, once he sort of peeled back the veneer, once he was so stripped bare and humbled to an extent that to me seemed unfair at that time. He hadn't been convicted yet. He deserved 
you know, at least the sheen of, of uh, the presumption of innocence, which he just did not get at all. And whatever anybody thought of, of Harvey Weinstein, as I said, he still deserved a fair trial, still deserved to be represented by the best lawyers that he could afford. And in the end, he didn't uh, get much of that and instead was a target, in my mind, for many unscrupulous people who took advantage of him. And at the end, I mean, his, some of his representatives um, were just complete imbeciles, jawbones of an ass, is what I would say, referring to uh, the Bible and the Samson and Delilah story when Samson, after being blinded, this is an old joke between me and my friend Mark Furnish, another lawyer, when I find somebody really stupid. Uh, when Samson was blinded, he, was, uh, he would grab the jawbone of an ass and he would swing it and, and kill his enemies, the Philistines. So whenever I run across a really stupid lawyer, I'll oftentimes tell Mark, you know, that guy's is, you know, he's the jawbone of an ass. But I digress. So that's my Harvey Weinstein story. I told you some of it. There's more, and I'll probably get into more of it at some point down the line. Talk about the case, maybe, and what I would have done differently. And Jeff Epstein, I want to talk about as well. I don't know that I'm going to do it on this podcast, because these are just thoughts that are popping into my head. and I spent some time with him in the MCC and my impressions of him were a lot different than what I expected. He was an unusual, but highly bright guy, but I'll get into that. I think in a later podcast, uh, this isn't going to be a real long one, but there are just some things in the news that just are, are shocking to me. Uh, one is that we finally took out Incredibly, we learned that American forces, apparently it was the CIA, finally droned the Al-Qaeda leader, Ayman al-Zawari, the mastermind of, of 9-11. And he was in an upscale home in Afghanistan. I think he was on his balcony when he was droned. And just him was killed. It was a very surgical strike. And apparently the drone that hit him was not an explosive, but one that had uh, knives had sharp objects and just cut him to pieces, which is wonderful. I hope he would have seen that before he died and realized what was about to happen to him. But he was living out and about in Afghanistan. And apparently once Biden gave Afghanistan to the Taliban and refused to keep even a single American base there, the terror leaders received refuge from the Taliban. I mean, they're probably streaming in from all over the globe because it's not like there's American bases anymore in Afghanistan to keep an eye on things for us. And the Taliban, naturally, this is what they do. I mean, they're terrorists and this is what they do. They terrorize. They're not, you know, there to be our friends. And of course, that's counter to what the Biden administration said last year when they cut and ran from Afghanistan. They actually claimed that the Taliban had changed their stripes, if you can believe. And I'm going to quote, the Taliban, if you can believe this, the Taliban has committed to preventing terrorist groups from using Afghanistan as a base for external operations that could threaten the United States or our allies, including Al-Qaeda and ISIS. That's what Secretary of State Anthony Blinken, the guy that's never right, testified before a congressional committee last year. And this is, he was such a lying sack of shit when he said that. Afghanistan is a safe haven for global Muslim terror and the terrorists don't just have caves to hide in in Afghanistan. Instead, uh, as we've learned from this, Al-Qaeda once again enjoys the support and power of a state, not just a, a terror organization that's in the state. Now Al-Qaeda is the state. I mean, excuse me, the Taliban is the state. 
And not only is it their own state that Al-Qaeda is living in, in Taliban's the state, but they're also awash with massive amount of U.S. military equipment. And naturally, uh, the Al-Qaeda being safeguarded by the Taliban, they're going to use that safety to plot more terror from there against the United States. And while we killed this one terror leader, we're not getting the intelligence needed from there without our bases, without people on the street there. So more attacks will clearly occur. And I applaud the CIA for finding him and not even harming a single other person. Although, frankly, if he would have, they would have blown up the entire building, I would have been all for it. I mean, I don't think anybody that's around him is innocent. But to me, this was something that if it had occurred 20 years ago, I would have appreciated I can't say that the killing of the 9-11 mastermind really does much for me now. And I'm not just saying it, it's because, uh, because Biden did it. It's just too little too late. It's 21 years later after 9-11 that we let him live this long as a disgrace. Uh, that he was back in Afghanistan, the place where he hatched the 9-11 plot, is also a disgrace. We've learned nothing from 9-11 apparently, and we're, we're going to get some more of that kind of stuff because of it. I mean, think about how awful that is, that he gets killed in Afghanistan, the place that we spent all that money, all those lives, all the injuries of, of our young people. And this guy, 21 years later, is right back there, safe, able to go out on his balcony and thinking that he's safe. Again, I applaud uh, getting him. It's better than not getting him, but I can't say that it really um, did as much for me as it should have. Now, on to slightly more Muslim terror. I know not everybody wants to hear about Muslim terror, but listen, too bad. It's not going to be the longest podcast, and it's important. It's important. If you all remember the Al Jazeera reporter, that Shireen woman who was killed in the West Bank during an Israeli raid in May, when that occurred, I mean, she was an American slash Palestinian, whatever the fuck that means. The world blamed Israel for it, even though there was no actual evidence that confirmed that Israel did it. The Palestinian Authority would not let Israel examine the bullet to determine the one that killed her if it was uh, a bullet from the Israelis. The Palestinian coroner who handled the autopsy said the evidence was inconclusive as to who shot her because there was a firefight and she got caught in between. American authorities were given the bullet finally, and the State Department said that the bullet was too damaged to determine who shot her. Regardless, um, only the most insane leftist slash Muslim terrorist slash Jew hater would suggest that Israel did it purposely if, if they did, in fact, do it. Because why would they want to kill an Al Jazeera reporter purposely? It's not like such a thing wouldn't end in worldwide condemnation. And Israel certainly has enough of that from uh, the left. And again, you notice how I lumped together insane leftists, Muslim terrorists, and Jew haters, because they're all the same. They're exactly the same people. Uh, there's not like three different groups there. They're all the same. But the screaming and yelling, uh, even though no one was sure who did it, it didn't end. It went on for months. It was just constantly heard all over the world. And of course, Israel had no choice but to raid the West Bank when the reporter was killed. Palestinians were coming into Israel and committing terrorism, Right before she was killed, they had killed 19 Israelis in seven, in seven separate terror attacks. Some were beyond gruesome. One of the attackers was killing people with an axe. 
swinging an axe and hitting people in the head with it. That's horrible. Others were shootings in crowded cities and cafes. In one attack, a man shielded his fiance and died in the act. And in another, a teen girl stabbed a Jew. Why? Uh, because of the death of her boyfriend. And Hamas, which is the government of the Palestinians, they celebrated each murder, even the one that ISIS took credit for, because that's what Muslim terrorists do. They celebrate the death of Jews, of Israelis. But I figured, you know, look, let's give the Palestinians, and now, granted, this is a people that are led by multiple genocidal terror organizations. This is the people who openly embrace Adolf Hitler. They name stores after him. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's give their supporters many who openly call for the destruction of Israel, let's give them the benefit of the doubt this time. Maybe they care about Palestinians being killed and don't just care about using the deaths of Palestinians for their own propaganda benefits. Now, I know in my heart this isn't the case because these are really a despicable people who use their children as shields and then when the children are killed, they cry about their children, about how Israel killed their kids. But they're the ones who strap bombs onto their kids. They're the ones who hide their rockets underneath kindergartens in order to invite a response by Israel that will kill the children. They only seem to care about their kids when they're dead and they can be used for propaganda. That's how I feel. If you think I'm wrong, explain it to me. But I don't see it. That's how I see it. If they actually cared about their kids, they'd stop their terrorism, they'd recognize Israel's right to exist, and they'd offer to live peacefully, peacefully next to Israel, and then their kids would actually have hope. But they just, they brainwash their kids in the classroom, that's a fact. They brainwash them to kill Jews, and they want their kids to be miserable and, and fight, and even if they die, they become martyrs, and that's what they want. They celebrate it, which is just sick. The world would bend over backwards if they simply said, we want peace and we're going to put down our arms. Think what the world would do. They would push Israel to give them probably half of Israel. I'm kidding. But you understand, that's how desperate the world is to get these animals to stop killing for Allah. But instead, what they have now is just a Muslim terror enclave that cares about death more than life. But as I said, I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt because I have some empathy for the rank-and-file Palestinians who do want peace, that do want to just live. There are some, but of course they're so badly beaten down by the Iranian-backed terror groups there, like I said, the aforementioned Islamic Jihad and also Hamas, and it's not like they can really come out there and, and speak their minds. They'll be killed. But I, as I said, I wanted to give them the benefit of the doubt after Shireen, the Al Jazeera reporter, was killed during an Israeli raid in May. Maybe they're changing and they actually care about the death of their people for real and that it's not just for propaganda purposes because they certainly cried about Shireen a lot. So imagine my surprise during the latest war. It's, you know, it can be called a skirmish. I don't think it's a skirmish if you, what you can call between Israel and the Palestinians going on right now as I'm recording this. This time the Iranian paid terrorists in Gaza, the ones named Islamic Jihad, and again, you can't be a solid Palestinian terror group unless you in invoke your religion in the hope to have genocide against Jews. It has to be in the name. It's got all, all the bases need to be covered. You can't just be terror group C. You've got to be Islamic Jihad. You've got to be you know, something like that, the party of God. It's got to be something that invokes God because, you know, God is going to help you slaughter Jews. I mean, this is the sick fucks that uh, Iran backs, that Iran pays. 
And the latest tit-for-tat violence started because Israel arrested one of Islamic Jihad's leaders. He had been openly calling for killing Israelis. He had been involved in killing Israelis, and Israel had intelligence that he was planning to kill Israelis. He was building up a military force in the West Bank when he was arrested for one reason, because he wanted to kill Israelis. I mean, this is why the terror group exists. They don't govern any Palestinians, Islamic Jihad. They're paid by Iran to kill Israelis. They have no other purpose. They're not involved in humanitarian acts. One purpose, to kill Israelis. So Israel arrested him. And obviously, that's not bad. It's a good thing. I mean, what are they supposed to do? Just let him act? And after this maniac terrorist was arrested, Islamic Jihad spokespeople said, we are placing our fighters on alert. I mean, they're threatening Israel. You know, we're going to get them back. We're going to pay back Israel for daring to snatch our terrorist off the street. So what would any sane nation do at this point? Allow some crazed Iranian-backed Muslim terrorist to operate with impunity on its borders? Allow some crazed Iranian-backed Muslim terrorist to threaten your people? And these aren't idle threats. They've killed Israelis before. Would any nation allow this? Would Russia? Russia invaded the Ukraine over a pretext and is slaughtering people as I speak. Thousands, tens of thousands. More people in a couple of months than Israel's killed Palestinians in decades in defensive wars when they've been attacked with rockets. Would America allow crazed Muslim terrorists on their border saying we're going to come into America and kill you? No, they would take them out. But for some reason, um, Israel's expected to just wait it out, I guess. Wait for them to come, and if they kill, that's bad. Obviously, the idea is to eliminate the threat before it gets inside your country. And somehow Israel allows this garbage to exist. They let them live, which is why so many Israelis get killed in terror attacks. Because instead of destroying the terrorists on their borders, they just seek to control them a bit, to mow the lawn, so to speak. They know that to destroy them, they'd have to enter the Palestinian territories and so many so-called uh, Palestinian civilians would be killed because the terrorists use the civilians as shields. And Israel doesn't want the worldwide condemnation they receive for killing terrorists and occasionally killing civilian shields uh, for some reason. Even after, as I said, Russia is targeting and slaughtering Ukrainian civilians by the thousands and no one seems to care. Just Israel, when they mistakenly kill an Al Jazeera reporter, or, you know, assuming that they even killed her. I'm not even sure they did. I'm guessing probably the Palestinians did because they're complete imbeciles and they oftentimes kill their own people by mistake. Anyway, of course, that the death of Shireen would not have occurred if the Palestinians weren't sending terrorists into Israel from that area and had resulted in so many terror attacks. What is Israel to do? They just, again, wait for the terrorists to kill them? But why Israel refuses to destroy these people once and for all is just, it's just madness. And it's not just the present liberal government that's in place. It was Netanyahu for years didn't do enough to kill these people. And the, the longer you let them linger, the more powerful they get. And eventually they're going to kill tens of thousands of Israelis. And then Israel's going to actually have to act, go into Gaza, go into the West Bank and kill anything that's moving. And that's really what the Palestinians want, unfortunately, because to them, as I said, the death is better than life. Uh, they get to uh, see Allah. They get to kill uh, uh, Jews. And there's nothing better to do than that on a Sunday, I suppose. 
So Israel didn't wait. They ended up killing um, a terrorist leader in Gaza, killing him to sort of make the point, you know, you need to stop. You need to stop threatening to kill our people. Islamic Jihad responded by launching a thousand rockets into Israel. We're at a thousand now and counting at civilian areas at Jerusalem, which houses the Muslims' holy mosque. It's like the third most holy of all holy places in Islam, which doesn't really count for that much because they're throwing rocks inside the mosque and they're walking around with their shoes on. And if you actually look inside, and I have, it doesn't look that much different than a fucking toilet bowl. But to them, you know, that counts as the third uh, holiest place uh, on earth. And Islamic Jihad, with their thousand rockets, they didn't care to target soldiers. They wanted to kill anyone in Israel. Why the difference in what each side targets? Israel is targeting dangerous terrorists, and Palestinian terrorists are targeting Israeli civilians. It's because there's this double standard that's now accepted by the world. Israel must act with the utmost care in not harming civilians because they're the only democracy in the Middle East, and we expect them to act humanely. And the Palestinians are insane Muslim terrorists who can kill anyone they get their hands on. They don't have elections. They steal international aid money. All of their leaders are billionaires. They don't build bomb shelters for their people because they want them killed for propaganda purposes. They celebrate when Israeli children are killed. Uh, They're ISIS, Boko Haram, uh, Taliban, Al-Qaeda wrapped up into one. They celebrated on 9-11. They killed dissidents in their ranks. They execute gays. They drag them on the back of motorcycles through the street. The only reason they're treated differently globally is because Israel is their enemy. And I'm talking differently than the Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and Boko Haram, and ISIS. There's so much anti-Semitism globally and double standards when dealing with Israel that you'll find that Israel is the one issue, the only one that the far, far left and the Nazi-loving, very, very far right can agree upon. Think about it. These are two groups, the far left and the far right, that can't agree on anything except one thing. These mortal enemies can agree on one thing. They both hate Jews. So naturally, they both hate Israel. So during the fighting uh, over the weekend with Israel responding to the thousand rockets uh, fired from Gaza, uh, they were destroying Islamic jihad terrorists and weaponry. Uh, A rocket landed in the midst of all this on a building in Gaza. I think I read that it was a mosque. It landed in Gaza, and numerous people were killed, including a bunch of children. And naturally, the Palestinians took massive amount of videos and pictures, because that's what they do after one of uh, a child is killed there, is they've got to take pictures, because they have to use it for propaganda. That's how utterly cynical and sick and diseased these people are. Uh, they had to you know, show their dead faces on film. They had to show them wrapped in shrouds. They had to show everybody crying over the the children, the crying, the weeping, the tearing their clothes off, their shirts off, the worldwide condemnation against Israel started to begin just the way it did with Shireen, the Al Jazeera uh, terror network's reporter who was killed in May. Except that a funny thing then happened. Israel responded by showing a video of the rocket which struck the building in Gaza and killed those kids. And it actually was an errant rocket fired by Islamic Jihad. And this happens in Gaza, the terror groups. Instead of the rocket going into Israel, it curved and stayed in Gaza and landed on the very building where the children were and were all killed. And as I said, this isn't all that unusual. 
about one in four or one in five out of all the rockets fired by the Palestinians from Gaza, it lands inside Gaza. It lands on their own people. It's never talked about. Because if a Jew doesn't kill a Palestinian, nobody cares. So all that hate, once this was shown, it was unequivocal. There was no pushback by the Palestinians. Because you could see it curve and land and boom. All the hate that was heaped on Israel for the kids being killed, well, it mostly stopped once that video came out. But I had hopes that, I had hopes that perhaps this would be the one time that Palestinians and their supporters in the West, Rashid Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and that uh, Alexandra Jimenez, Ocasio-Cortez, all of them, they would castigate the Palestinian terrorists for killing their own children. Wouldn't they finally say enough is enough? After all, they were so loud when Shireen the reporter was mistakenly killed by an errant bullet during a firefight between Israel and the Palestinian terrorists in May. Isn't a bunch of innocent kids at least worth as much as one reporter who works for a network which openly supports and assists Muslim terrorism? Instead, crickets. Not a word. Not a hint of criticism of the Palestinian terrorists aided by Iran. Not a whiff of criticism by the world against them for killing their own children. They're still screaming about Shireen's death from May only because it can maybe be blamed on Israel. But when an Iranian-paid terror group kills Palestinian children, nothing. All the usual suspects, nothing. Not even any criticism of Iran for funding the terrorists, who again have no other purpose other than to commit terrorism. They're not part of the government, Islamic Jihad. They don't have a humanitarian wing. They're just a bunch of fucking killers that the Democrats in our country support. How sick are these people? They're just base Muslim terrorist killers. And this is why the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will never be settled, because the double standard which exists that allows the Palestinians to act like complete and utter maniacs, as I said, they're no different than Al-Qaeda, ISIS, and the Taliban all wrapped up into one, the double standard never forces them to be human. As long as they're encouraged to be killer terrorists, they'll never seek the opposite, to want peace and to live next door to Israel without trying to destroy it. And they'll tell you, we're not here for our own state. We're here to drive Israel out and take it over. And Israel refuses to finally bite the bullet and destroy these maniacs. The prime minister of Israel, and he's naturally a leftist, said on Sunday that, quote, Israel has achieved its goals in the three days of fighting in Gaza against Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and there's no benefit to continuing the operation there. Really? Then why is Islamic Jihad still raining rockets down on Israel when he said this? I'd like to think that one of the operational goals would be to stop the rockets from being fired into Israel. If you're serious, you keep bombing them until the rockets stop. That is the only operational goal that matters. That's it. That's the only goal. If all of Israel's goals were met, met, there wouldn't be any more rocket fire onto Israeli citizens. Again, I'm repeating that, just like Joe Biden. Repeat that line. It's just pathetic. So Gaza gets destroyed again, and the cockroaches continue their terrorism 
once it's safe to show their faces again. And I'll say this. Imagine if today the Palestinians said, we are putting down our arms, we recognize Israel, we realize we made a mistake, we seek to live peacefully with them, we want our own state. Even if they didn't believe it, but they actually said it and did it, the world would drop to its knees to help them. Because think about it, the world is so desperate for there to be peace in this region. And they would push Israel to give more than perhaps Israel wanted to. And they'd say, listen, you got them to stop their terrorism. You need to give them a huge bouquet back. But the Palestinians are brainwashed killer terrorists and they don't value life. They value death. It's just madness. It's hard to even understand. It's insane. And any Westerner who supports this garbage isn't doing so for purely good reasons, but because of anti-Semitism. Because if you really cared about the Palestinians, you'd say to them, just put down your weapons, say that you want peace, and the world will fall all over you. They would. And they'd give them anything they wanted. But they're simply too base. They're simply too brainwashed. They're simply too crazy and violent to ever stop what they're doing. So 74 years later, here we are. Nothing's changed. Jeffrey Lichtman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Thank you for tuning in this week. That's my special Middle East slash Harvey Weinstein episode. I think next week we'll talk Jeff Epstein and I'll maybe give a little more deeper stories about Harvey with some more specifics. I feel a little bad. I didn't give you enough, but I wanted to sort of give you an introduction and make you not want to uh, come to my office and kill me. You can find me on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, beyondthelegallimit.com if you want to write to me and tell me how much you love me. I appreciate it. See you next week.